If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. Text is printed for you on the next page of your bulletins, but if you brought your own, I, I certainly invite you to, uh, to take uh, your Bibles out and turn with me again. 1 Kings 21 is the, the passage that we will be looking at together as we continue in our series on the gospel of Elijah and Elisha. Again, 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, we'll begin at verse 1 through the the rest of the chapter. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel's wife came to him and said to him, Well, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. 
He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This has been the word of the Lord, I promise. Have a seat, and, uh, and, and we'll take a look at what's going on in 1 Kings 21. Again, we're, we're rolling along in, in this series, The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha. We're spending time in a section of our Bibles that I know so many of us are not that familiar with. Our knowledge of, of this part of the Bible, uh, more so than other parts, is, is very fuzzy. And I will raise my hand and say, I, I, I join you with that. As a refresher, I think it's important to refresh ourselves of, of kind of what's going on, especially maybe if you've missed a couple of weeks. The height of Israel comes under the reign of King Solomon, who of course is David's son. That's when Israel is at its apex as, as a, a geopolitical force. But then after Solomon dies, because Solomon has, has led Israel already just a little bit into idolatry, it splits into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, also sometimes called Samaria because that's its capital city. And then in the south, you have Judah, which just consists of two tribes, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Ahab is Israel's most wicked king to date, and his reign begins about 100 years after King David dies. That's the timeline. In 100 years, and this didn't happen overnight, this was, this was kind of a progressive thing, we've gone from Israel's greatest king, David, the king after God's own heart, into this very weak, idol-pushing reign of Ahab. So after looking at some of the most dramatic events of Elijah's life, last week we left off with Elisha being anointed to be Elijah's successor. We're always going to get those names confused. You have to kind of live with it and just keep working on it, right? And even though Elisha has been commissioned to be part of Ahab's downfall, what's surprising is you turn the, the page and all of a sudden the prophets altogether disappear. Elijah shows up in our passage just for a couple of verses to, to pronounce the judgment on Ahab, but maybe we're a little bit surprised. The, the prophets disappear, other prophets come on the scene, and what's happening in the last three chapters of this first scroll of kings, first kings, is that Ahab's demise is now underway. And that's where we are this morning. Ahab's reign is coming to an end. So we're going to jump right in, kind of figure out what's going on with Ahab. You can see the, the wickedness of Ahab in our passage. I think this represents the pinnacle of his wickedness, his taking of, of Naboth's vineyard. So what we'll explore is, is Ahab's wickedness. There, there's not been a king as wicked as, as this one yet. But then most importantly for our purposes and what this ancient text means for us today is we get insight into God's character, which still matters immensely. And that is, in our passage, we see the justice of God. And then surprisingly, maybe in a way that's just a little offensive to our sensibilities, we also get this whiff of mercy. God's mercy is on display. All right, so that's what we're going to do. Jump in the text. We're going to look at the wickedness of, of Ahab and then see God's response of justice and then surprisingly of mercy. So bear with me. I want to begin by telling the story of chapter 20. We skipped chapter 20. We jumped from 19 to 21. But chapter 20 sets us up for this interaction between, uh, really, Jezebel and Naboth and his vineyard. 
The question that nags at us for a few chapters now is when is God going to bring the hammer down on Ahab? Remember the problem of evil in the book of Kings is we understand God is powerful and he is just. Then why in the world is he allowing this wickedness to persist? That's the problem of evil for our author in Kings. It's not the caricature of the God of of, of judgment who has lightning bolts that he's throwing down. It's this God of patience. Why in the world is he allowing Ahab to continue in his evil? And so you turn to chapter 20 after we're already told that Ahab's demise is going to start. And chapter 20 is this surprising chapter of grace toward Ahab. What happens is that to the north of Israel, you have the kingdom of mighty Syria, They're the power in the region at this point. They're led by a guy named Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad sends a messenger to Ahab, king of Israel, and he says, I want you to be a vassal kingdom to us. You're going to serve us. You're going to give us whatever we want. And Ahab says, okay, that sounds smart. We'll get peace. We we can be on the same side as Syria. Come and get get, get what you want. And then Ben-Hadad sends a second messenger, and he says, you know, Actually, here's what we're going to do. That first offer is on the table, but I'm going to send my men, and we're going to take absolutely everything that looks good to us in Israel, and we're going to leave you with whatever we feel like leaving you. Ahab consults with his elders. They say, that's too much to ask. We can't do that. And so little Israel, relatively speaking, goes to battle with mighty Syria, but all of a sudden this prophet comes on the scene, this unknown prophet, with good news to Ahab. He says, I know what Ben-Hadad is planning. I don't like it. You're going to have victory. You're going to go instigate the fight, and I'm going to give you victory. And that's exactly what happens. The prophet comes back after the victory, and he says, Syria is going to come back for more fighting next spring. The reason is that in Syria, they're saying, well, the Lord is the God of the mountains. He's not the God of the plains, and we have chariots, and we have horses. So this time, take the battle to the plains. Well, the prophet comes to Ahab, and he says, I heard what they're saying. Those are fighting words. Because I'm not just the God of the mountains, of course. He's the God of heaven and earth. And so you're going to go to battle again, and you are going to win again. And that is exactly what happens. They are decimated. And then Ben-Hadad comes crawling on his knees to Ahab, and he says, We have heard that you are merciful. You keep beating us. Can we have peace? And Ahab responds to this pillaging, violent, murderous king Ben-Hadad, My brother, let's make a covenant of peace. Now, you and I would think the story ends here, just a weird chapter of Israel and Syria going to battle. But then another prophet comes on the scene, and he's a visual parable. His face has been disfigured. He wears a face covering. He dresses like a soldier, and Ahab passes by this prophet, and he says, what's wrong with you? And the prophet says, well, I had a prisoner of war, and I was told that if I lose my prisoner of war, then my life is going to be accounted for. And I got busy doing this and that, and I lost my prisoner. And Ahab says, Yeah, you are in trouble. And like Nathan the prophet before David in the Bathsheba episode, this prophet says, yeah, I'm you. You had been Hadad. You had that wicked, pagan, evil king in your presence. You should have executed him. You should have done away with him, but instead you gave mercy to him. You gave mercy that you had no right to give to that king. Now, that's the backdrop for the story of Naboth, and it means a lot. It's the reason I told the story, and you're going to see this in just a little bit. So in our text, we're introduced to Naboth. He lives in Jezreel on a vineyard 70 miles north of Samaria. And so like our kings and rulers today, you have multiple palaces, multiple homes. And so he's at his his Jezreel property, right? He looks out his window, and he sees this vineyard of Naboth, and he says, I want that. 
I want that. So he goes to Naboth. He says, listen, I'll get you another vineyard. I'll give you the money if you're tired of, of, of growing grapes. And Naboth says, no, verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Naboth, or Ahab leaves Naboth just like he left the prophet uh, in, in the chapter 20 that we didn't read. Both times he leaves vexed and sullen, which means he is moping. He's moping. He goes home, and the, the language here is he lays on the bed facing the wall, right? Don't even bother me right now. You, know, you need to eat something. He's like, I'm not, I have no appetite. What's going on with Ahab? See, what we're seeing in this demise is, is he is continuing to be the most wicked king because his program is turning Israel back into pre-Israelite Canaan. And so Ahab, who represents this kind of neo-Canaanite kind of religion, he goes to, to Naboth, who stands in as a faithful Israelite. Ahab wants to take out the vines and replace it with vegetables. Who thinks that's really random? Sounds so random, doesn't it? Why are you replacing a vineyard with a vegetable garden? And then all of a sudden, that term vegetable garden has come up once in the Bible already. Deuteronomy 11.10. The Lord says, For the land that you are entering is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. Remember that, that random complaint that the Israelites have in the book of Numbers when they say, oh, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt and we remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. So Ahab is turning Israel back into Egypt. And Naboth, faithful, faithful Israel, he refuses. He says, king, even if I wanted to take the deal, the land doesn't belong to me. The Lord provided the land. It belongs to, to my family. So in the Old Testament law, if you were desperate, you could sell your land, and the hope is that a family member would come and buy it. Think of Ruth. A kinsman redeemer would come and keep the family in the land. But if you were really desperate, you could sell it outside of your family. But even then, the year of Jubilee comes around, and what happens? The land goes back to your family because it's not your land. It is the land that God gave to your family. Naboth is an exemplary Israelite. And Jezebel sees her husband moping around and scolds him. You are the king. You can do whatever you want. And so she takes Ahab's royal letterhead. She sends out a message to the leaders of Jezreel, Naboth's own people who should have protected him. Organize a fast, go set aside two hoodlums, two, two worthless men, two scoundrels. They'll bring false charges of blasphemy. He has cursed God and the king. They take Naboth outside of the city gates and they stone him to death, just as Jezebel commanded. Her voice is like the word of the Lord in that community. What she commands, the people do. Jezebel says to Ahab, hey, buddy, get out of bed. I got good news. Naboth is dead. Second Kings 9 confirms she also kills Naboth's son, so there are no heirs to this property. All are dead. Go take possession of the vineyard, and Ahab does. Now, why did I start telling the story of chapter 20? Because all of this takes place after God has been gracious to Ahab, after God has provided him victory. The story of Naboth is only more tragic after the story of God's grace to Ahab and Israel in their struggles with Syria. Ahab treats the wicked, pillaging, violent king like a brother, and he treats his Israelite brother, who as his king he should love, it was his subject to care for, and he treats him like a pest to be stamped out. All Naboth did wrong was protect the land the Lord gave his great-great-grandfather. At this point, we've hit rock bottom in the story of Ahab. 
That leads us to our question, right? When, when is God going to bring the hammer down? And what we see in our passage is this display of God's justice, which is our second point. This is a story about the justice of God. The story ended in verse 16, uh, and that's when, when they take over the vineyard. You, you can imagine uh, how senseless everything seems. You can imagine Ahab and Jezebel on the, on the porch of their, their Jezreel property, right? They're drinking iced tea, watching all the vines being pulled out, putting in box planters, and just having the time of their life. And that's what a lot of this world feels like, right? It's the wicked who prosper. It's the weak who are dominated by the strong. It's the powerful by the, or the powerless by the powerful. And this is a story told thousands of times across the world every single day. And yet Jezebel and Ahab have missed something. They've miscalculated. They have missed that they are living their lives before the presence of a holy God who not only sees their actions unfold, but he sees the hearts that plan these wicked actions. God has seen all of this, and that's why Elijah comes in. Elijah is a prophet of interruption. And he interrupts Ahab, and he says, God has seen all of this, and judgment is coming. And so this passage has long been a profound comfort to those in this world who are oppressed and who are afflicted and who suffer. For many in this world, the presence of evil and suffering leads them away from God. I'm, I'm guessing that there are people in this room that know others who, who, due to the suffering and affliction that this world has, those people want nothing to do with God. They can't, they can't reconcile the, the wickedness of this world with God. And I think that's a tragedy because it's only the presence of God that confirms that when we call something evil because we feel deep down in our souls that it is evil, it's only the presence of God that confirms it's not just some illusion. It gives meaning to our calling something evil. It means maybe evil actually does exist, and it's right that I'm incensed by it. It's the violation of Naboth, God's image bearer, that makes our blood boil because we are moral creatures with God's law written upon our hearts. To take God out of the picture makes our blood boiling arbitrary. Our moral calculations are just conditioned by our culture, and the scary thing about that is our culture is shaped by those with the power. What a meaningless cycle of interpreting the world. It's the presence of God and the hope of glory that allows us to identify suffering as real instead of meaningless and senseless. God is not in the picture. Our, our, our being angry at suffering is nothing more than, than, than why are we spending so much emotional energy when we don't have to? Now, the God of Naboth allows us to call evil evil and to trust that God sees the suffering of his people and one day will redeem every last ounce of it. Again, Elijah comes in with this ministry of interruption. Ahab and Jezebel do what they want, when they want, however they want. They think they answer to no one. Jezebel says to Ahab, don't you know you are the king? But even the king has to give an account. Verse 17, the Lord sends Elijah, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the possession of the vineyard of Naboth. Verse 20, Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah answers, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And he pronounces judgment. I will bring disaster upon you. I will burn you up and will cut you off. It's the most severe prophecy yet. God has seen the injustice done. He has seen the abuse of power. And while it might seem like they have gotten away with their wicked deeds, justice indeed is coming. 
And so in the end, the God of Naboth is a comfort to a church that will remain under the sword until Christ comes. How many Ahabs and Naboths has this world seen? Isn't Naboth just in the line of Abel killed by Cain, in the line of the infant slaughtered by Pharaoh, and the prophets who've already been slaughtered by Jezebel, in the infants who are slaughtered by Herod, the blood of Stephen in Acts 7, the blood of nearly all of the apostles? The estimate is there have been 70 million martyrs that have been killed in the history of the church. You could also say 70 million Naboths. More than half of those 70 million were killed just in the last century. And 1 Kings 21 reminds us that while the wicked believe that their victims are nothing, that there will be no eternal consequences, we are reminded here, no, justice is coming. Justice delayed is not justice denied. And so for us, right, especially with our news feeds that, that bring us to the, to, the, to the middle of all of the suffering of this world, we have a front row seat. And so what happens undoubtedly is that we're desensitized to it, Right? We're desensitized to the pain. We're, de- we're desensitized to even the reports of Christians who are suffering in this world. The estimated 45 million Christians martyred just in the 20th century. So many faces that just blur into one another. So many names that are lost. And yet we are reminded here those names are never lost and those faces are never forgotten to the God who calls them holy and beloved. There is comfort for the afflicted and oppressed that our God does not become desensitized to evil. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, John has this vision of the Lamb who's opening these mysterious seals. And it comes to the fifth seal, and, and John sees that under the altar are these souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is pure speculation, which is always a bad idea in the middle of a sermon. Was Naboth part of that chorus? Maybe. Maybe. We echo the prayers of these saints. The question of lament, right? Our wrestling with a world that's not the way it should be, knowing there is a promise that we are waiting for to make it as it should be, that prayer of lament is always how long? How long will God allow the Ahabs and Jezebels of the world to prosper? How long will God wait to avenge the shed blood of his people? So the story of Naboth is a story of the God who sees the injustice. He sees the wickedness of the world. There will be an accounting for it. But then we move to our third point because it, it, it leaves us with a funny taste in our mouth because the last note of 1 Kings 21 is something like the availability of mercy. So we'll look at the mercy of God. Elijah prophesies the destruction of Ahab's dynasty. Then the author comments Like Ahab was the worst king ever. We read in verse 27, when when Ahab heard the words of Elijah, he tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his flesh, and and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Now, if we read that, we might just think he's vexed and sullen again, right? He's moping around. He's always just bummed out by the news that he receives. And yet, God interprets his actions differently. We should go with God's interpretation. There was some kind of humility in Ahab. I don't know if we want to call it repentance necessarily, but there's at least this this humility and remorse because of the word that Elijah brings to him. And so what happens is, again, the justice is delayed. Ahab will not experience the full brunt of the justice that he should receive. 
Another word for that is mercy. Another word for that is grace, not getting what we surely should receive. God responds to Ahab's remorse. Can, um, th- th- there is enough of a softened heart that moves God toward him. Again, getting rid of that popular conception of the Old Testament God who's always looking to throw down lightning bolts, right? Instead, what we have is this picture of God like at the edge of his seat just looking to respond to repentance wherever he can find it. Back in 1 Kings 20, right, that, that's where we saw that, that Ahab could have responded differently. We could even go back further, couldn't we? Drought comes. What, what could Ahab could have done right at the beginning of 1 Kings when, when Elijah comes on the scene? He, he could have repented because drought was there. Um, in, instead of persecuting the prophets, what could he have done? He could have repented from that. Uh, at the Mount Carmel experience, when the people cry out, the Lord, he is God, what could Ahab have done? He too could have joined them and said, the Lord, he is God. When the Lord gives victory to Ahab, what could he have done? He could have been obedient, and he could have given praise to God and glorified God through the victory that God gave him. But instead, the prophet comes on the scene, pronounces judgment, which again, Ahab could have repented to the prophet, but he leaves vexed and sullen. Jezebel reports the murder of Naboth and the theft of his land, and, and Ahab does what? He could have said, Jezebel, what have you done? But instead, he says, call the moving trucks. We're moving in. And yet at the first sign of Ahab turning from his wickedness and humbling himself, God relents. And maybe this is a hard word for us to swallow. How could God postpone the justice that is due on Ahab's head? Isn't mercy a little bit offensive always? Did Elijah feel like the prophet Jonah? embittered when Nineveh turned from their wickedness, right? Preaching the judgment of God is not supposed to inspire repentance. Doesn't this upset our sense of justice too? And maybe it's supposed to. See, on the one hand, to belong to God is to be numbered with Naboth. Of course he was sinful. Of course he was an imperfect man in need of God's mercy. And yet he was faithfully living according to God's precepts. And so we are to see his blood crying out to God as innocent blood. Absolutely, it is innocent blood. And yet just maybe there's also a sense where we don't seem too dissimilar to Ahab. It's funny, our author, when he editorializes, when he comments on Ahab, he says this, He says he's the worst king ever because he sold himself to do what is evil. I think that's an important phrase. Uh, If you got to the very essence of Ahab's heart, would you see pure, unadulterated evil? I think the answer is no. Maybe with Jezebel, but not with Ahab. He was an opportunist. I mean, whenever Elijah commanded something, Ahab obeyed him. Uh, Whenever Jezebel commanded something, unfortunately, Ahab obeyed her. And so the question becomes, have you ever disobeyed God for power, for acceptance? Have any of us in this room ever bullied someone because of the approval we would get from a particular crowd? If Ahab is the worst of anything, I think he's the worst people pleaser of all time. And that's his problem, and I think it's relatable for so many of us. Furthermore, Ahab lives his life as if God isn't present. That's the miscalculation. He can do whatever he wants because he's the king. The problem is there's a God who sees. How often have you lived your life as if God were not present? I would argue most of our sins, thought, word, and deed, are committed simply because we don't believe that God actually is present with us. What would you do with unrivaled power? How would you do with the temptation, you're the king, and you can do anything you want? 
It's not that Ahab is morally ambiguous. Don't hear that. He's not morally ambiguous. He's wicked. The problem is that the human heart, ours included, is far more like Ahab than not. And so you have these stories of the kings and the prophets, which basically take us all the way to the end of the Old Testament, and they're absolutely weary. You feel the weight of a world that can't save itself. You keep asking, when will God uh, send a prophet who can get through to the people? When will Israel pull itself together? God keeps interrupting the sin and idolatry by sending these prophets, and all of this leads to God's greatest interruption, not sending just another prophet, but he sends his son. And Jesus, the son, tells the story of his interruption in Matthew 21. And appropriately, it's a parable of a vineyard. A master of the house plants a vineyard, builds a tower, leases the vineyard out to a bunch of tenants. And at time of harvest, he sends the servant to collect the fruit. And the tenants beat the servant. And so the owner decides, I'm going to send more servants this time to gather the fruit. And so he sends more servants, and the tenants beat them. And now we know who these, who these servants are, don't we? These are the prophets hidden in the caves. It's Elijah and Elisha and the prophets that will come after them. But, of course, they're beaten too. And so the master of the house says, I will send my son because surely they will respect him. And the tenants see the son, and they say, ah, oh, that's the heir. And they don't beat him. They kill him. And so the story of Naboth tells the story of the justice of God that introduces this tension of mercy, a God on the hunt for a broken and contrite spirit. And while Naboth's story holds justice and mercy in this uncomfortable tension, it prepares us for the greater story where justice and mercy kiss. Because the story of Naboth anticipates the story of another righteous Israelite, not a Jezreelite, but a Nazarene. It's the same exact story of a man whose enemies conspire against him to have a sham trial where two scoundrels come forward to present false testimony of blasphemy. And like Naboth before him, Jesus is found guilty and he is taken outside the city gates and executed. The innocent blood of Naboth should have stirred the conscience of Ahab to repent. The perfectly innocent blood of Jesus, the same, but it's better blood. It's not blood that cries demanding justice, it's blood that speaks mercy. It's blood that speaks a better word, Hebrews tells us, than the blood of Abel, and we could also say it speaks a better word than the blood of Naboth. It's blood that covers, it's blood that cleanses, it's blood that liberates us from our sins. This is a story of justice and mercy. Justice because there will be an accounting for every evil that is done in this world. We have to hear that message just screaming through this passage. The God of Naboth still reigns, friends. The God of Naboth is still the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Every sin will be answered for before the God who sees and who does not get desensitized to evil and wickedness. This is also a story of mercy. Mercy for those who turn from their sins and go to the one who suffered outside the gate. Every sin will be answered for either by us or by the one who suffered outside the gate. That's why the exhortation in Hebrews 13 is let's go. Get up and go to the one who suffered outside the gates. That is where Jesus is. Our invitation is to heed this greatest interruption in our world. Not just another prophet and a long line of prophets, but one better. A savior crucified and risen.
an invitation to find our lives, our hope, and our standing before God in the mercy that's in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I confess this is a hard reality to navigate. Uh, it's, it's hard in, in, in a sense to, to know that, that even our prayers of, of how long, O oh Lord, those are, those are crafted by vocal cords of mercy. Who, who, are, who are even we to long for justice to come? As those who have received mercy from your hands. But Lord, we do cry out that you would make all things new. Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would establish your kingdom of goodness and peace and beauty. A kingdom that our hearts long for and our appetites for joy and our appetites for peace and our appetites for glory. Lord, we pray that you would do a work by your spirit to take this word which undeniably uh, has this great distance culturally, chronologically, historically. And yet you, by your spirit, would bridge that gap so that we would be able to come to see the God of justice. In a world of judgment, in a world of condemnation, that we add our voices to, to, to throw ourselves on the judge whose eyes are pure, and who judges with equity and truth and righteousness. And to then cast ourselves on the mercy that is for us in the gospel. Lord, to even use this old, old story um, to shape us into those who, who cast ourselves more and more on you. Lord, would you do that work in our midst? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.